0: To the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Mark Kirkendall. We're so glad you've joined us today, and as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, bethelbible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday service now. Uh, so, this morning in your Bibles, let's go to 1 Samuel chapter 8 this morning. And we are going to go to a fascinating section of the Scriptures. In fact, if anyone ever tells you the Bible is boring, remember 1 Samuel 18 and 19 today. Incredible section in our Life of David uh, series. Today we have a lot to cover. Two chapters, 54 verses that we will attempt to tackle uh, today. So here's where we are. Week 1, David, the shepherd boy, is anointed king in this private ceremony with his father, his brothers. The town elders are there. Samuel's coming to anoint the new king. Looks at Eliab and thinks, man, that is the man. God says, not so fast. David runs in from the fields and he is anointed king. Last week, we saw David just accomplished An incredible thing. This young man, not 20 years old yet, someone that was never trained to be in the army, never suited up for battle, never once known to carry a sword, he runs into battle against this almost 10-foot giant, and he kills him with one throw of his sling. And as a result, word's going to spread quickly, and David becomes a national hero. So David, he goes from this shepherd to being anointed king. Now, be clear that he's not installed yet to war hero. And we are about to look at a very, very interesting time in David's life. Because I don't know if you've kind of thought about his life, but I think sometimes we think, yes, shepherd, we know that, defeats Goliath, and boom, he's king. But in fact, we're in this journey now that it is about at least 10, probably more like 12 or 13 years after Goliath that he becomes king. He doesn't become king till he's about 30 years old. So we're at least 10 years away from that. David, we'll see, he's going to have many ups and downs. He'll be celebrated. He'll be hunted. He'll have people all around him. He'll experience loneliness. Many mountains. And many valleys, but what we see all along the way is that man, God's got a plan and God's involved in every aspect of, of David's journey. So this morning, I want us to see two major things. One, I want us to look at an evil monster that lives within Saul. And the sad thing is, is man, this monster actually lives in all of us. Second, I want us to look at the protection of of God's chosen. So once again. first and 2 Samuel. Remember we're to see that as one major work. And the author. Always is doing this kind of contrast. You know we've talked a lot about walking by sight. And then walking by faith. Saul and David. God's spirit is upon David. After it's removed from Saul. David and Goliath. This experienced feared giant contrasted with this inexperienced small shepherd boy. So first I want us to see the contrast with Saul and we'll be introduced to our next kind of uh, person in this story, his son, Jonathan. So after the Battle of Goliath, that's where we are, Saul's going to put David in charge of all kinds of things. And David is going to be successful everywhere he goes. And when you're successful, you know what happens? Word travels. You know, you're going to do book deals, you're going to get on some speaking circuit, word is going to travel, and everyone seems to be excited about this David guy, except one person. So chapter 18, let's begin in verse 1. And as soon as he had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit with the soul of David. And Jonathan loved him as his own soul. And Saul took him that day and would not let him return to his father's house. So he keeps David, he wants to keep him close. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and he gave it to David and his armor and even his sword and his bow. In his belt. And so, what we see is this really unique relationship between David and Jonathan. They meet, and there's just something supernatural about their relationship. Then, in verse 3, they make this covenant, meaning they would have made a sacrifice, they would have made some vow, they would have taken that animal, cut it into two pieces, joined together, and passed through them to say, If we ever break this vow, what happened to that animal, let it happen. To us. Then in verse 4, Jonathan takes his armor, his, his sword, his bow, and his belt, and he gives it to David. But here's what's so interesting is that Jonathan, he's the crown prince. He is the next in line. But by giving David his armor, his weapons, his clothing, he's actually renouncing his own position as the crown prince, and recognizing it is David's. So this is a completely uh, surprising and humbling act, because Jonathan's saying this, he's saying, I do not want what is rightly mine. He's willing to see that God's will is for another. He's going to give up what is culturally his. So instead of eliminating David, which most princes, anybody that's a threat to your kingdom, you eliminate them. Instead of doing that, as the crown prince, he transfers his rights to David. And the thing that this should cause us to ask is, why would anyone do that? I mean, why would anyone give up what is rightly theirs, what what they are entitled to? Why would someone give that up? And what we see is that Jonathan is walking by faith and not by sight. Because Jonathan believes that God's will is for David to be the king, not him. But don't pass over that too quickly. Think about how hard that would have been to accept. You're next in line. You'll have no worries. You will have more power, more prestige. Never have to worry about a thing. Never have to pay for anything. And he is willing to give all of this over to David. And what we see is that only faith can make you do that. Only faith can make you give up something that is rightly yours to someone else. Only faith can cause you to willingly give something up to actually receive something less. Only faith would cause someone to surrender their rights at least what they have, or they pretend to have, for someone else, and I think that's what be what we call sacrificial and and humble, being selflessness. Man, we should be in awe of David or Jonathan's response to David, that he was willing to give it all up for God's will. So the writer is so great in his writing. He immediately gives you a contrast. Look at verse 6. As they were coming home, when David returned from striking down the Philistine, the women came out of all the cities of Israel singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines and with songs of joy and with musical instruments. And the woman, they sang uh, to one another as they celebrated. Saul has struck down his thousands and David, his ten thousands, and so success is happening for this young shepherd boy. But now we will see the monster that actually we're all we're all capable of housing this monster you could call it jealousy, or actually maybe envy could be actual better word because we all know what it's like we we've all experienced those feelings, those uh, that control of what jealousy can do. But first of all, note that there's actually a good side to jealousy. In fact, we see it in Exodus 20, verse 5, that says, You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Meaning, God is jealous for His people to worship and to live for Him alone. I mean, he knows that he should be the one that's first in the lives of his children, that he should be honored above all else. God knows he is the only one that can survive living at the center of your life. And when that doesn't happen, there is a righteous jealousy. The closest thing I could think maybe in our lives would be this, is that there is a rightful jealousy that there should be between uh, between spouses. Meaning, there's a type of jealousy that's right. When a husband or wife, when something happens and someone is going after their affections, that should be rightly yours, man, there should be a righteous jealousy in that. The husbands and wives ought to protect their marriage from intruders. But there's also a very unrighteous and even a sinful jealousy. Jealousy. And so I want to use the word envy. That envy is this monster that we are all in danger of harboring. So we'll see now Jonathan's response. We've seen that in with David. He's walking by faith. But let's look a little closer at Saul's, I would call this his sinful envy, as a result of walking by sight. So look at verse 8. So he hears the celebration, and Saul was very angry. And this saying displeased him. Now, why would it displease Saul? And he said, They have ascribed to David ten thousands, and to me, they have ascribed thousands. And what more can he have but the kingdom? And Saul's eye, I David from that point on, you know, he had the thing going on. But you see what's happening? Is he is watching envy well up in him, and he's getting to the point in his head, he has played out, and he has probably already had the battle. No, David is coming for my kingdom. So he hears the credit that David receives them, celebrating them, writing songs, and Saul becomes envious. But I want us to see, because I believe this is where it actually starts with, with all of us. So here's the, uh, the uh, affirmation, here's the esteem of David, and it's there in uh, verse 8. And he says, they have ascribed to David his ten thousands, and to me they have ascribed thousands. So here's where I think envy, at least in my life, envy always starts. Envy says he or she, in this case David, but me. And you could fit anything to that. He or she, but envy says, but but me. Meaning envy takes whatever happens to other people and it makes it about us. Envy says, you know what, I deserve better. I deserve better than what I have right now. And we see someone living better than we do, we get envious. Envy will look at whatever someone has And it will make you feel entitled to it. Envy will never allow you to enjoy someone else's happiness or success. Envy can't do it. And then what envy does, it seems to come in and it seems to actually distort our reality. And then all of a sudden it becomes consuming because envy says he or she, but me. Listen to how some other people would say this about envy. The envy is a hunger you simply cannot satisfy. The more you eat, the emptier you feel, and it forces you to feed it once again. And we're going to see that in Saul today. Or someone else said, envy is a pain that will never go away. It will persist, and it pounds us until we are pushed to the point of no return. And we're going to see that in Saul also. So before we get real personal with that, let's see how this really applies to this situation. So when Saul sees that God is on David's side, he sees David being successful, he realizes that God is with David. Saul can't handle it. So let me recap for us the rest of 18. Find it there, verse 9. Let me kind of walk us through kind of really what happened. So, the Goliath slayer is promised marriage to Saul's daughter. Well, Saul backs out of that and he gives that daughter to someone else. But when he hears that his second daughter, Michael, is in love with David, Saul sees an opportunity to feed or to satisfy his envy. And what he does, he sets up a payment. He says, you want to marry my daughter? The dowry is what they did back then. He says, you know what? Mm, How about a hundred Philistine foreskins? Now, I've heard of some dowries, but this has got to take the cake. But here's what he's thinking. David will go out. There's no way he can survive killing a thousand Philistines. I'm going to send him to battle and he'll die. Now, remember that because that will come back later in the life of David. So what does David do? David says, okay, and he brings back 200 Philistine foreskins. Imagine what that was like. Comes and brings him to the king. Saul's probably thinking, oh my Lord, I never thought he would survive this. But you know what happens? Saul's envy grows, and it grows, and it grows. So Saul takes another approach. Because of Saul's envy, he'll try to now kill David not once, not twice, But four times in chapter 19, we will see Saul try to kill David. But here's what I want us to notice, the second thing. Even through all of these attacks, I mean, the most powerful man, the king of Israel, is no match for God protecting his chosen king. So let's now go to chapter 19, and we're going to look at four different episodes. This first one I I like to call the cat is let out of the bag. Look at verse 1. And so spoke to Jonathan. So he's going to bring kind of his, his cabinet together. His most trusted men. His son. And to all his servants. Those that are closest. And he tells them. They should kill David. So he comes together and he says you know what? We're going to kill David. But Jonathan, Saul's son. Delighted much. In David. So. Saul finally says, okay, here's the plan. We've got to take David out. I know he's my son-in-law, but he has got to go. Because envy is a hunger that can never be satisfied, and it will lead you to do things that are completely destructive. But as controlling as envy is, look at verse 2 at God's protection. So he tells the cabinet the plan. And Jonathan told David, Saul, my father, he seeks to kill you. Therefore, be on guard in the morning. Stay in a secret place. Hide yourself. And I will go out and I will stand beside my father in a field where you are. And I will speak to my father about you. And if I learn something, I'll come and tell you. And Jonathan spoke well of David to Saul, his father. And he said to him, let not the king sin against his servant David. Because he has not sinned against you. And because his deeds, they've brought good to you. For he took his life into his hands, and he struck down the Philistine. And the Lord worked a great salvation for all of Israel. You saw it, and, and you rejoiced. Why then will you sin against innocent blood by killing David without cause? And Saul listened to the voice of Jonathan. And Saul swore, as the Lord lives, he shall not be put to death. And Jonathan called David and Jonathan reported him all these things. And Jonathan brought David to Saul, for he was in his presence as before. So Jonathan goes to Saul and he appeals to him rationally. He says, Father, listen, David has not wronged you. Rationally, you have no business to want to kill him. He goes at him morally. David's done nothing but good. Father, why would you want him dead? He even goes at him theologically. He says, God saved us, remember, all of Israel through David. And Saul, he relents, at least for a moment. So in verse 8, we get episode number 2. I call this the David kebab. Verse 8, he says, and there was war again. So another battle breaks out. David went out, and he fought with the Philistines, and he struck them with a great blow so that they fled before him. Then a harmful spirit from the Lord came upon Saul. And as he sat in his house with a spear in his hand. And every time we see Saul, he seems to have this spear with him. And David was playing the lyre. And Saul sought to pin David to the wall with his spear. But he eluded Saul so that he struck the spear into the wall. And David fled and he escaped that night. So once again, David is successful, and Saul can't handle it. The more successful David becomes, the more envious Saul becomes. Because envy envy will never allow you to enjoy someone else's happiness or success. So he tries to make a shish kebab out of David with his spear, but he misses. So you know what David's going to do? He's going to run for for refuge, and he's going to go home. Now, I don't want us to just read words on a page. Imagine what this next section would have been like. I call this third episode the sunrise surprise. Look at verse 11. So Saul sent messengers to David's house to watch him. So he goes home. But who's he married to? He's married to Saul's daughter. Imagine how this went. Um, honey, um, your father, No, know you love him and all, but man, you're not going to believe what just happened. He tried to pin me against the wall with his spear. She had to go, David, man, have you been in the sauce a little too quickly today? I mean, did that wine really turn? But he comes to her and he lays out what has happened. But he says that he might kill me in the morning. So Saul, being controlled by envy, he's going to send some hit man to David's house. So the plan, he tells him, is to wait until morning. Got to thinking, all right, why would that be? Maybe... He's waiting for David to leave. Maybe he doesn't want them to rush in and, and his daughter die in the process. So God is going to use David's, or Saul's son, Jonathan. He used his, his aim. And now he's even going to use Saul's daughter for his own protection. Now, this reads like a scene from Ferris Bueller's Day Off. Look at what happens. But Michael, David's wife, told him. If you do not escape with your life tonight, tomorrow you're going to be killed. So Michael let David down from the window, and he fled away and escaped. And Michael took, an, or Michael took an image and laid it in the bed and put a pillow of goat's hair at its head, and he covered it with clothes. So she's making it look like David's there. In verse 14, And when Saul sent messengers, code word hitman, To take David, she said, oh, he's sick. Then Saul sent the messengers, a.k.a. hitman, to see David, saying, bring him up out of bed that I may kill him. When the messengers, a.k.a. hitman, came in, behold, the image was in the bed with a pillow of goat's hair at its head. And Saul said to Michael, why have you deceived me? Thus let my enemy go, so that he has escaped. And Michael answered Saul, He said to me, Let me go. Why should I kill you? So, I mean, it's just like that episode, if you've seen that movie, where they pretend, you know, that he's sick in bed, and the principal comes looking for him. Michael helps him escape. So David will now run for his life. He gets run out of the palace. He gets run out of his own home. So who do you run to when no one else Seems to be a safe place. He's going to go to his old friend, the prophet Samuel. In verse 18, now David fled and he escaped and he came to Samuel at Ramna, And he told him all that Saul had done. And he said to Samuel, went and he lived at Namath. So it's only about five miles away that he runs to Ramah. And Samuel is at this camp. And I don't know, it's kind of like a, a retreat for one people. To want to be prophets and I don't know it seems like he gathers these prophets together and I don't know how you train a prophet um, but he's teaching them the ways of a prophet so Samuel or Saul is, or David is going to run and he's going to try to find refuge among this people but Saul being king kind of has eyes and ears everywhere and he hears that David is gone here now here is where Things get really interesting. And I'll tell you, man, I've studied these next few verses. I'm still not quite for sure what happens, but it's really strange. So we're going to see it here. And I call this last one, Naked and Afraid. Verse 19. So it was told to Saul, Behold, David is at Namath in Ramah. And Saul sent messengers, remember, a.k.a. hitman, to take David When they saw the company of the prophets prophesying, that's what prophets do. And Samuel, standing his head over them, the Spirit of God came upon the messengers, a.k.a. Hitman of Saul, and they also prophesied. So Saul being in control, and being controlled by his envy, he sends this special ops team to Ramna to take David out. And when they arrive there, it says they start prophesying. But before before we talk about what this was, notice Saul's determination. Sends a group, they start prophesying. In verse 21, when it's told to Saul, he sent another messengers, and they also prophesied. And Saul sent another a third time, and they prophesied. So Saul sends a second and a third group of hitmen, but when they get there, they start prophesying. Man, I've looked, I've studied this word, and the best definition I can find is this. It was an infectious enthusiasm that so gripped them that they were unable to carry out their plans. So once again, this is the closest thing I can think of is, you know, you have that fight with your spouse over the phone. And then what you start doing, you start having the fight in your head on the way to the house. You know, I can't believe she or he said that. And I mean, I know they're going to say that and they're going to bring that up again. And you have the fight all in your head. In fact, you have it before you even get there. And when you get there, you're ready. You walk in, maybe you smell supper ready. It's your favorite. And they start in telling you about all the things they appreciate about you and love you. And all of a sudden, all the rage is just gone and you just can't help but to give in to, you know what, man, that was ridiculous. And I think it's something like that, that they show up, man, they're ready, Saul's told them what their their process is going to be to go and take David out. They get there and they start hearing the glories of the Lord. And they can't help but to join in. And all of a sudden, they can't even remember why they are there. So these men, they come into this group and tend to kill David. And they hear them proclaiming the greatness of God. And they can't help but to join in with him. And before long, there's no way. Even against the king's orders, which would have meant putting their own lives on the line. So here's what we see with Saul. When our imagination is, is fueled by envy, suspicion takes over. And at that point, dangerous things can occur. Because when envy happens, the things that go on in our minds, and the imagination that we live in, so then what are we to do? What do you do when you can't get something done? You know what you do? You take things in your own hands. And this is great. So Saul went from a real passive approach. Send him to battle. Let the Philistines kill him. That doesn't happen. I'll send hitman to his house. Doesn't happen. Chase him to Ramna, doesn't happen. So now the king's going to take things into his own hands. Look at verse 22. Then he said to himself, then, then himself, he went to Ramna. And he came to the great well that is in Suku. And he asked, where is Saul and David? And one said, behold, they're in Namath at Ramna. Why are you here, Saul? You took a wrong turn. And he went there in Namath in Ramna. So Saul's enemy or envy has totally taken control of him. He's out for blood and nothing was satisfied. But once again, notice God's protection. And the Spirit of God came upon him also. And he went and he prophesied until he came to Namath and Ramah. So it hits Saul before he even gets there. In verse 24, And he too stripped off his clothes, and he too prophesied before Samuel, and Saul laid naked all that day and all that night. Thus it is said, is Saul also among the prophets? So he's so overtaken he strips off naked and he lays there for an entire day. So whoever said the Bible's boring? But what we see is God's protection all along. This journey that was controlled by Saul's envy. And I mean, I would say, man, what a start to the life of Saul. So here's, here's what I want us to see, or to kind of take away from, from David's life. First of all, notice God's ultimate protection. No matter the plan that Saul had, it could never overtake God's protection. Meaning, God never loses sight of His own children. You're you're never outside His watchful care. You're never outside His protection. Meaning, as a child of God, you are never outside His watchful, caring eye. The second thing, I man. I think it's a great reminder of just the dangers of envy. Listen, I'm the chief. Among sinners with this. But we all know what this feels like when envy begins to creep its way into our lives. And what we see is this group of this saw here with how controlling envy can be. And we need to be aware of this own monster in our own lives that it can quickly and easily rear its head. And it can come in so many forms. You know, your friends, they go and do something without you and you get left out. It'd be much better if you didn't know about it, but Facebook's there just to make sure that you know about it. And you know what you do? Because I do the same thing. You start imagining all the fun they're having. Oh, you know, they're probably talking about me. You know, I wasn't good enough to get invited in that. And they leave us out. We think about, you know, I'm not good enough. And envy happens. Someone gets a promotion or gets credit for a project, and we think about how hard that we've worked. And then we're not getting the credit and the recognition we deserve. Because it says, but them, or they, but me. Or someone gets the new house, the new car, the new phone, whatever it might be. And we think of all the ways that we work harder than they do. And that they're not as deserving as I am. Because envy is a dangerous monster. But what we really need to see is really kind of what's happening. We need to know what is, what is the uh, underlying issue. I think it's this. Anything that we make more important than God, recognition, family, friends, approval of others things, they can easily become an addictive substance. But we see here from Saul is that whatever you make, listen, whatever I make, whatever you make more important than God, and his will, you actually end up losing it. Think about Jonathan. Loved God. Loved God's will more than the crown. And he gave it up. You know what he ends up? He ends up being more kingly and more worthy than his father. But Saul? Saul loved the crown. He loved his kingship more than God. In the end, he ends up losing what is most important to him. So what's the solution? What are we to do when we start feeling envious and jealous? We look to Jesus. And I know I know that sounds churchy. But the only way to defeat the monster of envy is to look at Jesus, who is the complete opposite of that. Think of this. Jesus achieved everything. But he looks at you and he says, I want you to have it. Jesus is the rightful heir to God's kingdom, but he says, I want you to share it. Jesus earned the Father's love and acceptance, but he says, I want you to be completely loved and accepted, even though you could never earn it. Jesus says, I want you to be fully forgiven, even though you don't deserve it. Because Jesus loves to see people get what they don't deserve. And that is how envy, I think, is destroyed. It's by looking to Jesus. So here's the blessed news. We'll never be anointed king over God's chosen people. We may never be asked to lead God's armies into battle. But we can be confident that God will keep us, he will protect us until whatever he has ordained for us is accomplished. And that can include protection from the monster of envy. Let's pray. Thanks again for listening to the podcast today. We hope that you were blessed and encouraged. And if you have any questions or comments, we want you to let us know. Simply send your thoughts to questions at Bethelbible.com.